crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and talked. I was at a crawfish boil yesterday, and um, that song would have fit in perfectly there. Like, where is our crawfish? We need some crawfish up in here. So, um, hey, welcome to South. We're really glad that you're here. You came on a great week. We are starting a new series that we're going to be in all summer, where we're going to be exploring one of the most um, impactful, significant, beautiful messages ever given called the Sermon on the Mount, you can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 where you'll find it. Over our our nation, over the last few weeks, we've been in a season that we affectionately refer to as graduation season. And in graduations, you you have a, a few pieces of pageantry, right, where it's signified that a person is moving from one season to a next, from high school to beyond high school and college to beyond college. We had a preschooler that graduated and he's moving into kindergarten, which is a pretty huge accomplishment for him. And, um, but along with the pageantry, there's also typically a speech and there's some words said and And it's intended to be motivational, sort of Chris Farley motivational, right? Like you can take the world and you can wrap it around your hand and put it in your pocket and, you know, that type of a speech. And I started to wonder, why can't I remember any of the speeches from the graduations I've been involved in? Like if they were so magical and so inspirational, so let let me just do a quick survey. Can anybody remember, and I'm not talking one that you went to this year, but let's push it out like at least two years ago, a speech from a graduation you can remember? Like I need to get the notes from that because it must have been really good. I can't remember any of the ones that I've been involved in. And that's not true though for every speech. Some of them are really memorable, aren't they? I mean, some of them we can, just with a few words, we can go, oh, so-and-so gave that speech, right? Let's let's just do a little little trivia this morning, okay? Let's see if you can name who gave that speech. Four score and seven years ago, our yeah, Abraham Lincoln. We didn't even need to get too far into it, did we? And yeah, Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, and he paints a picture of this is the groundwork that our country was founded on, and we as a country need to push forward to value and honor all people, regardless of the color of their skin, that we have to be a country without slavery anymore, right? Yeah. What about this one? My firm belief is that the only thing we have to fear is... Fear itself. Roosevelt, FDR, FDR. Yeah, it was given in 1933. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I mixed it up for service. I was like, ask not what your, you can do for your, wait a second, idiot, you know? Yeah, who was it? JFK. JFK, yeah, yeah. What about this one? I have a dream that, yeah. The one nation, our, one day our nation will rise up 
To live out the true meaning of its creed, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Martin Luther King Jr., 1963, 100 years after Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. That should haunt us a little bit. They're saying essentially the same thing, right? But isn't it fascinating that we can all, I can say four words, I have a dream, How many of us have had a dream? We've laid our head down on a pillow at night and we've had a dream or we've had a hope or an aspiration. Will you just raise your hand if you fit that category at some point in time? Yeah, every human being has had a dream and yet I can say I have a dream and you know immediately who I'm talking about. You know immediately the picture that's being painted. You know immediately at least a little bit and piece of the dream. See, not all words are forgotten. Some words catch fire. And some words continue to have an echoing reverb throughout the world that we live in long past the time that they were given. Do you know what? If you look up, just Google speeches that have changed the world, you will find all four of those speeches that I said, but at the beginning of every list that I found, or at least on there somewhere, are the words of Jesus of Nazareth, the Sermon on the Mount. That for some reason, these, these words at this time to this audience caught fire. And they have changed the course of our world. And there's a reason that when we say, blessed are the poor in spirit, that we all go, Jesus. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus. There's a, there's a reason that we can know this sermon and these words. The Sermon on the Mount was a message that was given by Jesus of Nazareth to a group of people who are sitting in front of him. We'll talk about who they are in just a moment. But you have to know that this is a teaching that Jesus gave most likely on multiple occasions, that as he talked about what his kingdom looked like, these were subjects that he circled back to over and over. So don't think of it as just one sermon given. Matthew records it as a whole sermon, and it probably was. But whenever Jesus talked about the kingdom, he talked about these things. They were in his bones, and they were things that he wanted to invite humanity as a whole into. So if you have your Bible open, Matthew chapter 5, listen to the way that Jesus starts this sermon. It's going to be a sermon we're going to chew on and wrestle with for our entire summer, but that's just a fraction of the time that people, humanity, have been wrestling with these words. Matthew chapter 5 follows Matthew chapter 4. You're dialed in. I love it. We'll come back to that. That's important. Just file it away. Now, when the crowds, when he saw the crowds, He went up onto a mountainside and he sat down. It's interesting. Whenever Jesus sees a crowd, you and I, we want to gather a crowd. Jesus seems to want to ditch the crowd. And so he sees the crowd. They're coming around him. He's like, let's go up to a mountain. Maybe a few of these people will not want to hear my words enough to follow me up. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, as I said, Matthew chapter 5 follows Matthew chapter 4, but if you're sort of a student of the scriptures, you're going to go, hmm, Jesus going up onto a mountainside to teach people. There's something about that that I'm familiar with. So if you flip back over to Matthew chapter 2, what you see is that Jesus is born in Bethlehem and then flees to Egypt, which is really interesting. 
He goes to Egypt and he's there for a time and then he comes back to Nazareth, his hometown. And then in Matthew chapter 3, anybody have their, their Bible out? What's the, what's the heading in Matthew chapter 3? What happens there? Yeah, yeah, he's baptized, right? He's baptized. So Egypt and then um, you have a baptism. You have Jesus coming out of the water, right? Okay. And then Matthew chapter 4, what, what's, the, what's the heading at the top of Matthew chapter 4? What happens in Matthew chapter 4? Yeah, we have Jesus who's heading into the wilderness to be tempted, right? So if you're a Jewish reader and you're tracking along with Matthew's gospel, you're going, hey, wait a second. I've heard this story. Into Egypt and out of Egypt to go into water, through water, to go into the wilderness. Wait a second. What's going on? Moses. Yeah. That Jesus is this like picture of Israel's journey, rescued from slavery out of Egypt, through the water, the Red Sea, Jesus through the waters of baptism into the wilderness where they're tempted, and then up onto the mountain, which also sounds a lot like whom? Moses, right? Only Jesus doesn't go up onto the mountain to receive revelation from God. He goes up on the mountain to what? To give it. It's in a sense, Matthew is in no small way giving a wink and a nod going, you see what's going on here. You see what's going on. The story of Israel is reaching its fulfillment. What God has been doing throughout all time is coming to a peak and a pinnacle in the person and work of Jesus. And quite literally, he's sitting up on the mountain. And he is, in a sense, speaking as the new Mosaic Messiah delivering a new Messianic Torah, a new way to live, a new way to become the people of God. But if you read back just a few verses in Matthew chapter 4, listen to what Jesus said. It says this about him, from that time on, Jesus went and he began to preach. So the question we would go is, well, what's the content of Jesus' preaching? Here's the bird's eye view of what Jesus talked about. If you were to go to a sermon that Jesus was preaching, more times than not, the content of his sermon would have been, some way, shape, or form, repent. Turn, change your mind. Change the way that you think about this world that you live in. Change the way that you think about God. Change the way that you think about everything that you see. Repent. Turn. Why? Well, because the kingdom of heaven has what? Come near. And some translations will say it is at hand. And so what Jesus talks about, if you continue to read down in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4, it says that he went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the rest of the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. So who's Jesus' audience? It's the broken. It's the poor. It's the people, if you saw him walking down the street, you would probably go to the other side so that you didn't have to get too close. It's the people who would have never had a good word spoken over them for most of their life. 
It's the bottom of the rung. It's the, it's the people who we'd look at and go, man, those people do not have a lot going for them. And he said to them, Jesus did, you want to know why this sermon has power? You've got to hear what Jesus says in light of who's sitting there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't know about you, but I have wrestled with these words. You? Yeah, I've, I've wrestled with the, Jesus, how in the world are the poor in spirit blessed? Why, why do the meek inherit the earth, Jesus? Why, why, do the, why, why is being persecuted seem to be a good thing? Anybody with me? That on the surface, these don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Um, can I nerd out on you for a moment? Is that all right? Okay, thank you. Both of you said yes. So, wonderful. I just needed one little inroad, and I'm in. Uh, there's two words that Jesus could have chosen for this word, blessed, which just happens to be the theme of the way that he starts this sermon. You got that, right? I put it in yellow, bold, and italicized so that we'd catch it. This is the, the theme of what Jesus is saying. The first word is eulogia. Will you say that with me? Eulogia. In the Greek, it means an active blessing from God. It's God, it's us praying, God, will you bless this person? And it's God responding, absolutely, I will bless them. God, bless this person who's sick. Let them sense your presence. God saying, I will bless them. It's active coming from God. That's not this word. It's not this word. The second word he could have chosen that he did choose is the word makarios. Will you say that with me? Makarios. Markarios is a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more complex. It's not a wish or an ask to evoke some sort of blessing from God. Rather, it's a recognized reality. These people are blessed. They're blessed because this is the way that the world works. They're blessed because woven into the fiber of the universe that God has spoken into being, this is how it functions. So you don't need to necessarily ask for this to be a blessing from God. It just simply is. So people have wrestled with how do we translate this word blessed? Because for us, we live in a, at least a Christian subculture where we use or maybe overuse the term blessing, don't we? How you doing? I'm blessed. You know, I'm just praying for some blessings, right? And we, we use that word a lot. They would not have, back in Jesus' day, just a side note, this would have been coming onto the scene with fire, something new, something different, bursting onto the scene. You could translate it, happy are. Some translations do. The Good News translation, happy are the poor in spirit. You could translate it, congratulations. 
you could translate it, surprise! You didn't see that coming, did ya? It's like Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Surprise! Nobody expected that. The word carries with it this, this like, how, how do we pronounce it? Or how do we translate it? What do we do with it? And like I said, nobody in Jesus' day would have expected this. Because we live in a world right now where we have this perspective that happiness is our right. Happiness is our goal. We live with the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness, right? But nobody Jesus is talking to would have had that perspective. See, there's probably two views, predominant views, that Jesus is talking to. One is the Greco-Roman view. And it, it was this. You are not supposed to be happy. If you are happy, hide it. Because happiness is the realm of the gods. And you don't want to tiptoe on their turf. Because they will do what? Strike you down. Oh, you're happy, Paulson? Boom! Happiness is my territory. Thank you very much. Right? So nobody in Jesus' day would have flaunted being happy or blessed. Well, the Hebrew view of this word blessing was that if you are a good sort of Torah observant Jew, if you obey the, the first five books of the Old Testament and then you throw in the prophets as well, well, then, then, then God will bless you. And Jesus comes and he looks at this ragtag band of people who have been healed of sicknesses, people still carrying sicknesses, people who are poor, people who've never had a good word spoken over them in their life, gets them up on a hillside outside of Galilee and says, Arcarias, you're blessed. You're, ble you're blessed because I am, Jesus says. You're blessed because my kingdom has come, and you've turned, you've repented, you've walked into this kingdom. You, in the state that you're in, in the regrets that you have, in the things that you wish you could redo, or the things that you wish you could get out of your life, you are blessed. They're not commandments. It's not, thou shalt be poor in spirit. Or thou shalt be, and think of how strange this would be if you, we read it as a commandment. Be persecuted, right? Thou shalt be persecuted, right? So then we could like persecute each other, find a loophole, wouldn't be as bad as being persecuted out there, and then we could be blessed by God, right? These are hard to read, aren't they? But they're not commandments. That's not what they are. They're not a list of moral standards. This is better than that because of some moral standard that Jesus has set up. Being poor is no better morally than being rich. What you do with your wealth, well, there's something attached to that. But Jesus is saying, how much wealth you have has zero bearing on your morality. It's not a list of moral standards. And it's not a list of simple like formulas where you plug in this and you automatically get that out every single time. If you're going, hey, Paulson, you just took away everything I thought that was. Welcome to the party. Because maybe like you, I've read this wrong for, I don't know, most of my life. They're not commandments. They're not moral standards. They're not formulas. What are they? Here, here's what these beatitudes, that's what they're called. That word means blessings. The beatitudes are, are an invitation. And they are inviting into a way of being that results in true human 
flourishing. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto on human flourishing as a result of the reality of the kingdom of God being at hand. When uh, my wife Kelly and I lived in San Diego, I've told this story before, but for me it paints a vivid picture of what Jesus is doing. Uh, we had gotten tickets to go see the Padres play down in San Diego, and she got the tickets for my birthday, and we were in the nosebleed section, uh, but we didn't care. It was just about being together and taking in a game in, in a beautiful city. And so we were walking in downtown San Diego, and we walked up to uh, right near the gates, and somebody came up to us and said, hey, I have, I have tickets to the game. Do you want them? And we responded by saying, we've already got tickets. Thank you very much, and walked right past them. And we walked a few paces down, and I said to Kelly, and she'd bought the tickets for my birthday, and I said to her, hey, would you care if I go ask where his seats are? Which is a dangerous thing, right? And um, she said, no, I wouldn't, care. I wouldn't care at all. And so I ran back, and I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, sir, do you still have those tickets? And he said, yeah. I said, just by curiosity, where, where are your seats? Because I know where mine are, right? And he said, oh, they're a few rows up from home plate, right behind the dugout. And I said, well how much do you want for them? And he said, they're free. Take them. And I did. And the whole time I was sitting behind home plate watching the game, I was trying to see Kelly up in the left, <laughs> left field bleachers. I just didn't. Now she had, he had two tickets. The whole game though, I was, it was this, it was this moment where I'm just the whole game looking at what I'm taking in and where I should have been. And I kept replaying. What if I wouldn't have gone back and tapped on that shoulder? I would have taken in the game. It would have been fun, but it would not have been like it was. I think Jesus is doing the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. He's doing the same thing with the Beatitudes. They're invitations. He's holding them out to us. And his question is, will you take this invitation? It's counterintuitive. It might not make sense. Will you take this invitation? I told you I'd wrestled with these for so long. As a high schooler, I thought Jesus was off his rocker a little bit, okay? And I read the Beatitudes and thought, these are the blessings that nobody wants. And I don't want to be a part of this type of a religion if it's going to invite us to something that doesn't make any sense in the world. And I was on a run, um, actually, this week, on Wednesday of this week. I'd gotten out early and was just taking it all in. And I was on, the run, on my run talking to Jesus about the Sermon on the Mount, and these beatitudes, and I just sensed him say to me, because I was expressing, man, Jesus, this was like a long season of my life where I just didn't like these a whole lot. I didn't get them. And what I heard him speak to me was, Ryan, it wasn't that you didn't understand these, and it wasn't that you were interpreting them wrong. It was actually that you didn't want my kingdom. You were so attached to your kingdom and your way that you actually didn't want anything to do with the invitation that I was giving. And if, and I say this gently and hopefully pastorally, if our approach to the Beatitudes, if we approach the Beatitudes wanting our own kingdom, still they are going to grate on us. They're going to rub against our humanity. They're going to push against our kingdom and the things that we want to hold on to and the things that we want to build our life on. So as we walk through these in just a moment, will you just ask yourself the question, Jesus, is there any invitation you're giving that you want me to receive, but I'm still holding on to my own kingdom? Because I think the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, will tease those things out. 
in a way that maybe no other text in Scripture can do. So if the Beatitudes aren't commands and they're not morality and they're not formulas, what are they? What are they? Here's the first thing that they are. The Beatitudes are an announcement of Jesus' lavish grace. They're an announcement of Jesus' lavish grace. Please notice, we're going to get into what does Jesus invite us to do? What does he call us to do as followers of his way? To live free from anger, to, to not murder the people around us. That's a good thing. To keep our word, to love our enemies, and all that stuff's good. But hear me on this. Lean, lean in a little bit. Before Jesus commands us to do anything, he speaks blessing over us. Before he says, do anything, he says, Makarios, you're blessed. My kingdom is at hand. It sounds a lot like what the angels said to the shepherds that, in that field the night that the Messiah was born. <laughs> do not be afraid, Luke chapter 2, verse 10. I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy. Great joy for how many? All the peoples, even those with disease and severe pain and demon possession and having seizures and the paralyzed, even those, good news of great joy is coming. And he gets to this importation at the very end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7. You can read it, verses 24 and 25. And he says, the people who do these things, they will build their life on a rock that will not move when the storms of life come. He gets there. You've got to build your life on it. But before he talks about building a life, he talks about a blessing that's come because the kingdom is at hand. They are announcements of lavish grace. And friends, this is the gospel. Before we've done anything to deserve it, Jesus has said over our life, over your life and mine, you're blessed. You're blessed because of me, God says, not because of you. Not because you've done anything to deserve it and checked off a list of to-dos which these people had not done. You're blessed because our God is a God who loves, who loves to lavish his blessing, to wire it into the way that the world works. I, I like the way that Dallas Willard put it. And by the way, um, online we have a list of suggested reading for our summer series. And if I could reference one book to you that stands above them all, in my humble opinion, it's The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, The Hidden Life and the Kingdom of God. And here's what he says in that book. The poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they're in a meritorious condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their condition, the rule of the heavens has moved redemptively upon and through them by the grace of Jesus. The Beatitudes are announcements of lavish blessing. Here's the second thing they are. They're a radical re-envisioning of the people of God. A radical re-envisioning. Remember who Jesus gathers around him, the people who are following, the people who are hanging on his every word, the people in, described in Matthew chapter 4, the down and out, the quote-unquote losers, the people who've never had a blessing in their life. And Jesus is going, if you're in the kingdom, 
you're my people. These are the people of God. They are not the Torah-observant, dutiful Jewish people following every yacht and tittle of the law. There were those people around there. They weren't the people following Jesus. And what Jesus says is, you are now my people. The presence of Jesus' kingdom changes everything. It uniquely changes his followers. It's, it's like um, Lucy and Susan and Peter and Edmund opening up that closet door and dipping their toes into a whole new world in Narnia where they weren't just kids. They were sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. They were warriors fighting for good to overtake evil. They were fighting for right to overtake wrong. They were fighting for joy to overtake sorrow. And Jesus says, he looks at this ragtag band of people and says, you are now my people. And you'll carry my blessing into the world. A blessing no one expected. A blessing no one anticipated. And a people that most didn't want. (laughs) That's his kingdom people. And finally, here's what it is. It's counterintuitive wisdom of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are not commands, but they're portals to a new way of thinking. They're they're not platitudes, they're paradoxes. You know what a paradox is? It's something that doesn't make sense until you live it. On the surface, you go, there's no way that could be true. And then you do it and you're like, that's true. Jonathan Pennington says this, a prophet, Jesus as a, as a prophet and sage is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true flourishing now and in the age to come. They're not requirements, they're statements of reality. This is how Jesus' kingdom works. So before we jump into really a, a cursory read of each of them, let me just point out how we should read each of these blessings. Because for a long time, I read it, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're poor in spirit. Anybody else? Like the poor in spirit was, was the blessing. That word for in the Greek is called a hati clause, and it means that whatever follows hinges on what's first. So it's being poor in spirit isn't the blessing. We should read this, that for as because. Read it, read it with me like that. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's something about being poor in spirit that opens us up to the reality of the kingdom of the heavens. It's a radical inversion of the wisdom of the world. And you just have to know, friends, all of us are chasing blessing. All of us believe that there's a way to live blessed in this world. And I'm not talking about necessarily the blessings. We, we always think of blessing as material, right? The new house, the new car, the brighter, the shinier, the boat, the, all, all of that. But if we were to be honest, the blessings that we cherish most dearly, every single person in this room, are not possessions. They're, they're not things that we go, oh, I bought that with this raise and I got that house. and that, that's, not, that's not what fills our soul. 
And Jesus is going to talk about a makarios, a blessing that actually does light up the human soul, where we go, oh, that's what I was designed to do. But so many of us are chasing the wrong kind of blessings that maybe we're unable to see the blessing Jesus is holding out. I saw this um, insane, it's called a cheese wheel chase on ESPN this week. And I thought, yeah, this is how most of humanity looks as they chase after the blessings that we often go after. It's a real thing. They're chasing a wheel of cheese down a hill. And I thought, yeah, that's what it looks like. That's what, that's what going after the bigger, the better, the brighter, the shinier, the more feels like some days, isn't it? And it's what so many of us build our lives upon. It could go on for days, but I won't let it, okay? (laughs) In contrast to that, Jesus looks at people who, from the world's point of view, have nothing and says, Makarios, you're blessed. So I would love to, over the next few minutes, just give you a picture. If if Jesus were to give these blessings today, how might they read? Will you get the scriptures in front of you so you can follow along? And how might they read? What might this wisdom, this kingdom wisdom sound like. This life appears to work this way, but it actually doesn't work that way. It works this way instead. So we'll start it off with what the world says, and we'll combat that with what Jesus says, and then what I want to do is reframe the blessing that he gives. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The world says the strong and the wealthy are the blessed ones, but Jesus says blessed are the down and out. The unemployed and the underemployed, those on the wrong end of the globalized economy, people without a college degree or health insurance, those spiritually simple and a little bit of a mess, blessed are the people who don't have it all together. Because, why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom. They have an openness to receiving what God is handing out because their hands are empty. This is is the Jesus kingdom wisdom. Blessed are those who mourn. The world says, be strong, stuff it down, hide your sadness and your failures. Put on a happy face, right? Turn that frown around. And when Jesus is talking about mourning, it's not just over the things that have happened to us, but but sometimes it's who we're becoming that we mourn over. And Jesus says, blessed are those who let themselves go and grieve honestly. They grieve the failed marriage, the death of the loved one, another miscarriage, the racism, the addiction. They're blessed because they will find the arms of God and others around them to meet them in their need. Because what we hide, God won't heal. So so what's the better? The wisdom is, man, you don't have to pretend like things are all right. If they're not, you can be honest. And actually, there's a blessing in that honesty. It's not try to mourn. It's when you do mourn or when things don't go right, you can mourn knowing that God wants to meet you in that place. Blessed are the meek. The world says, gather a fan base, build your audience, get out front and make your mark. Jesus says, blessed are the timid, the quiet, the shy, the people in the background, the wallflowers, those with two likes on Instagram. Because in the end, they will be the ones who reign with God. The tables will be turned, and they will be out front. To quote Jesus of Nazareth, the first shall be last, and the last shall be 
Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, yeah. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, just a quick aside before we go into this. Righteousness we typically think of as only between us and God. But for all of Jesus' audience, they would have understood righteousness, not only be right standing with God, but right relationship with everybody around them. It was a relational term. The world says if somebody wrongs you, write them off. Don't give them a second thought. Move on. If you fail yourself or God, just forget it. To err is human. But Jesus says, Jesus says, blessed are those who continually long for things to be right between others and between God. Because here's the blessing. Eventually, eventually. So don't give up on longing for right relationship because eventually their insatiable longing for rightness will be fulfilled by the very life of God and deep relationships with others. Blessed are the merciful. The world says, give people what they deserve. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If someone wrongs you, you have the right to get them back. But Jesus says, blessed are those who continue to live with compassion and offer forgiveness. Who refuse to react to troubles and wrongs by condemning and blaming others. Because they are the ones who truly taste the mercy of God and there's nothing we need more. So think about what Jesus is saying. As you offer mercy to others, as you offer compassion, as you offer forgiveness, you open your life up to receive the very thing that you're offering. But if everybody has to pay you back, and that's the system that you set up, Jesus goes, well, you're going to have no palate to taste my mercy for you. Blessed are the pure in heart. The world says, be who people want you to be. Play the part. Do whatever it takes to get ahead. But Jesus says, blessed are those who embrace a posture of integrity, where what you see is what you get, who allow their inward life and outward life to work in unison with each other. Because when you live with integrity, you see God. Think about that. When you live with integrity, you see God. You see him both in your shortcomings and in your successes. You see him in your failures and in your joys. But if you hide it, you very rarely see him. Blessed are the peacemakers. The world says choose your side, defend your turf. Those on your side are your friends. Those against you are your enemies. Have you heard that? I mean, that's a narrative of the world that we live in. But Jesus says, blessed are those who stand in the middle and call both sides towards each other. Believing that a bigger army or a more powerful weapon is not the true source of peace. They see people not as rivals to beat out, but as brothers and sisters to love into wholeness. And Jesus says those kinds of people, they are blessed. Why are they blessed? Because one day the world will look at them and go, oh, you look a lot like God. You, you look a lot like God. Before we think, though, that being a peacemaker is fun, <laughs> we should probably pause and realize what it is to be a peacemaker. I think this picture of um, a friend of mine, her name's Courtney Christensen, um, during, uh, right after Charlottesville, there was protests and marches in cities all across America. She lives right near Portland, and... Um, And she's a peacemaker. And she took a sign 
And she said, us versus them is a false choice. And she stood in the middle. And she wrote a blog, it's posted on Preemptive Love Coalition's website about how lonely it was to stand in the middle. To be hated by both sides. To be a peacemaker is to be an equal opportunity offender, inviting people towards the middle, inviting people towards love, inviting people to a better way. Us versus them is a false choice. Somebody say amen. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are the persecuted. The world says avoid pain. Do whatever you need to do to stay comfortable, happy, and well-respected. But Jesus says, blessed are the ones who reject the comfortable conformism of fitting into whatever the majority is doing. And instead, take the non-conforming, narrow way of living out the difficult truths requiring great love and grace. Why? Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom. They're not blessed because they're persecuted. They're blessed because they recognize all oh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Even in the midst of the mess, it's here. See, Jesus' blessings are grace-based wisdom invitations that invite us to flourishing as we live life in his kingdom. So three quick things, and then we're going to the table. Three quick things in light of Jesus' teaching for us to just take home. I think we have to recognize that blessing doesn't always change our circumstances, but it does always infiltrate them. That the poor who come to Jesus poor, uh, many of them left poor, but changed. The meek, the ones getting run over by their society, were still getting run over, but they were changed. And I think a lot of times we tell Jesus, hey, if you're in this, if you're blessing, it's got to look like this. And he goes, you're just chasing after the wrong blessing. Would you open your heart to receive what I actually want to give? It'll change your circumstance. It won't always change your circumstance, but it will infiltrate them. Second, blessing comes as we are where we are, not, as we're, not where we wish we were. So wherever you're at this morning, wherever you're at this morning, in your pain, in your failures, in your regrets, in your wish I would have, but I didn't, in your I wish that would change, but it won't, wherever you're at this morning, because the kingdom is present, you are in the perfect position to be blessed by God. And finally, blessing is dependent on his kingdom, not on my competency. And that is great news, is it not? I love the way John Orpik put it. He said this, you know who's blessed? You're blessed. Not because you live, in a, live a well-managed life and not because you have a lot of resources. Not because you're well-off, well-fed, well-dressed, or well-educated, but because you're in a messed up, goofed up, junked up, knee-deep, desperate, choking condition. Good news, good news, Makarios. Blessed are you. The kingdom is coming. And if you'll just receive it as a broken, needy person, then out of that broken, needy blessedness, you become a blessing to other people. Who's blessed? You are. You are. Because the kingdom 
is here. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. It was a good dream. We're still hopefully moving towards that dream. Jesus of Nazareth had an announcement, and he had an invitation. And his question is, will you this morning, will you receive it? And we live in a world, I believe, that desperately needs us to say yes. I saw this um, post on Twitter this week, which is where you get all your good information. <laughs> but it said this. It was uh, somebody asking a pastor, a local, or not a local, but a, a pastor in our nation. He said this, I'm an atheist looking for common ground. What would you like to see Christianity become in the U.S.? I was raised by fundamentalist families and it wasn't pleasant for me. My question is sincere. I could use some hope right about now. And Brian Zahn's response was, I would like to see Christianity in the United States become an embodiment or at least an approximation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I realize it's a long way from that right now. And my prayer, friends, is that because of our time together this morning, or this throughout these mornings we'll have throughout the summer, is that we might become a little bit closer to embodying the kingdom that Jesus says is present. Would you stand with me as we get ready to move towards the table this morning? I want us to do an exercise that I'd invite you to practice maybe a few times during this week, but I just want you to close your eyes and ready your heart. And if you're comfortable, I'd, I'm inviting you to just open your hands and put them facing palms down. It's a way for us to just posture our bodies to say to Jesus, Jesus, we're, we're just letting go. We're letting go of some of the, the ideas we have about the way that we think life should work. We're letting go of some of the ways we think you have to get blessing. We're letting go of our kingdoms. And then would you face your palms towards the towards the sky. And Jesus, we're, we're, we want to say to you this morning that we want to receive your, your life, your kingdom, your way, your wisdom that often grates on our humanity and our desire. But Jesus, we, this morning, we just, we just want to say to you, we're open. We're open. We want your way. We want your life. We want your words, we want your teaching, we want your grace, we want your love, and, and we're open to receiving it this morning.